the title for tonight is the Grand Canyon, the big picture. And I'm going to share with you some things tonight that uh, probably many of you have never heard of before. And uh, don't stress, I'm not going to bore you with all the different layers in the Grand Canyon. We're only really going to touch on one. But uh, to begin, my name is Calvin Morosky. Is there a way to uh, have it not ring? Or is that just me? <clears throat> um, my name is Calvin Morosky, and I'm a physical therapist. I'm not a, uh, what you would consider a real scientist. I, I don't have a geology degree. I've never even taken a geology class, but I've gone on many field trips and learned some things about geology, and I've been excited about what I've learned. So that's part of the reason why I've been willing to come and share with you. And like uh, was mentioned earlier, my wife's name is Debbie. I have two children, Melissa and Michael. And uh, Michael has given us our first grandchild with his uh, wife, Alyssa, a wonderful gal. And uh, just, I don't know, how long has it been? Uh, a week ago, my uh, daughter has uh, gotten engaged. And she, uh, she is going to bring with that marriage three children. So I'm going to become a grandpa several times over. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Back in 1977, I read a book. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read this book, but it's uh, Secrets of the Lost Races by Rene Norenbergen. And uh, I got excited. I was, I was amazed at all the stuff in this book. And that's what kind of implanted seeds in my mind um, to uh, this subject. Now, one thing I learned about is Uparts. How many know what Uparts are? Two? That's it? Well, Uparts stands for out-of-place artifacts. Out-of-place artifacts are things that don't make sense to conventional scientists, but if you're a creation, or I'm sorry, if you're a Christian and you believe in the Bible, they can make perfect sense. So when I was at Loma Linda, for my physical therapy degree, I had some spare time and I went to the library and they had two books in the library on Upart. So I was fascinated to go through that and learn some stuff. Um, but you know, life got busy for me, uh, going to school and trying to uh, do my best and then trying to support my family. So I, I wasn't able to really pursue my interests. But about 12 years ago, I, maybe 13 now, I was instrumental in bringing somebody named Dr. Doug Newton uh, to our area, and he gave a Friday night and all-day seminar on creation-related stuff, and I again got inspired. So I went online, and I wanted to find a tour, and I thought that uh, uh, going down the Grand Canyon would be amazing, and in my process, I, I met, um, well, actually, I learned about a guy named John Hergenrather and his friend Dennis Bakavoy, and they uh, started something called Creation Encounter, and I started going on these tours. Now, these uh, are a list of most of the ones that I've been on. You can see, uh, oh, ones that you might be familiar with is maybe Yellowstone and Grand Tetons and Death Valley. I've even been to Peru twice, 
Uh, I haven't been all over the world, but I did go to South America and found some interesting things down there. But my dream was still to go to the Grand Canyon. And this last summer, I went to the Grand Canyon. Ooh, let's see. Yep, I went to uh, Bryce Canyon. I went to Zion National Park, the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and you can see the list there. I did that all in three weeks. The middle week was a raft trip down the Grand Canyon. What an experience. <clears throat> and because I'd gone on these trips and because my wife at times would say, well, you know, we're spending a lot of money on you going and doing all these things. When are you going to do something with it? And so when Sarah asked if I would come and share with you, even though I knew it would be a lot of work in preparation, I decided to go ahead and do that because I should do it anyway. Well, the first week, my wife joined my daughter and my niece Madison and myself, and we went to Bryce and uh, Zion, and uh, then my wife flew home, and my sister and her husband from Virginia, they flew out to meet us, and they went down the Grand Canyon with us. They went home at the end of the Grand Canyon trip, but my daughter and my niece Madison finished out the trip and went to Monument Valley, Natural Bridges, and Arches National Park on the way home. The Grand Canyon. You know, most of us have heard of the Grand Canyon. How many have been there? Oh my, that's a majority. That's fantastic. Well, the Grand Canyon is an amazing place. But you know what? It looks a little different from the river. And I spent a week on that river. It was hot. I couldn't believe it. <clears throat> the first night, um, you know, it was hot. And then the first night, the boatmen that, that guide us down the river, uh, they said, yeah, there's some great campsites around the corner there. And we thought, okay, okay, you know, and we hustled over there and we put out our cots and got our stuff ready. And what they didn't tell us is that those rocks that we were putting our cots on had been baking in the sun all day, and they liked to radiate all night. Oh, I couldn't sleep. And to top it off, it was a full moon, so the moon had come up and shine right in your eyes, and it was a tough deal. I don't think I got any sleep that first night. After that, I got as close to the river as I possibly could because <laughs> the river is only 48 degrees when we start out. Now, that's pretty cold. You try swimming in 48-degree water, and you don't want to stay there too long, at least not me. <clears throat> um, but, you know, whether you see Grand Canyon from the rim or whether you see Grand Canyon from the river like we did for a week, you come away asking yourself two questions. How did all these layers get here, and how did the Grand Canyon form? Those are, those are amazing questions. Well, if you ask the ranger from uh, the rim, if you go on a tour, he's going to tell you that that river carved the Grand Canyon over millions and millions of years. But I know now that is absolutely not true. I mean, there's features that I saw from the river that defy any kind of long-term explanation. It just, it just couldn't be. Um, but to really understand the Grand Canyon, I need to share with you the big picture. 
How many of you have heard of the Grand Staircase? Oh, a few of you. Yep, the Grand Staircase. In the 1870s, geologist Clarence uh, Dutton first came up with a concept of the Grand Staircase. And the Grand Staircase is really kind of a progressive uh, layering. Uh, starting on the right, you see Bryce Canyon, and uh, you follow all the way through to the left, and you have the Grand Canyon making a staircase effect. But I also need to introduce you to another concept that's called the, Plata uh, the Colorado Plateau. How many have heard of the Colorado Plateau? Oh, I, a, a few more. Excellent. You know, when I, I, I did a couple of practice sessions, one in my own church and one in a, a little country church not too far, and hardly anybody had heard of the Colorado Plateau. <clears throat> so you guys are ahead of the game. The Colorado Plateau is an area of uh, 130,000 square miles and takes a big chunk of Utah on the top left, Colorado the top right, Arizona the bottom left, and New Mexico on the bottom right. And you'll notice that those four states come together at a point uh, called Four Corners. And maybe some of you have been there and had the opportunity to uh, be in part of four states at the same time. Well, the Colorado Plateau is composed of sedimentary layers. That means they've been laid down layer upon layer. They're not um, rock like if you went to Yosemite National Park, it's full of granite. That is not sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rock has things in it like fossils. <clears throat> and so the Colorado Plateau is an area of sedimentary rock that's been laid down layer upon layer upon layer and then was pushed up 10,000 feet. Can you imagine a whole section of land, 130,000 square miles, being shoved up about 10,000 feet? Well, you can imagine what it would look like if that area was covered with water. If that whole sedimentary 130,000 square miles was covered with flood water and then got pushed up, what would it look like? Well, it would get eroded. Can you imagine? I mean, I went for a walk with Sarah and the kids today and we passed by a couple of ponds. And if you took a pond and just shoved it up in the air, the water would slide off and run off and cause all kinds of erosional features. And that's what happened to the Colorado Plateau. Now, this is my niece, Madison, on the right, my daughter, Melissa, on the left. And we are standing at the uh, Indian uh, Tourist Center there at Monument Valley. Now, Monument Valley, you, if you haven't been there, you've at least seen movies or pictures uh, of these big buttes that uh, are so interesting to look at. And if you were to ask conventional scientists, they would tell you, well, Water and wind would erode this feature over millions and millions of years. But you know what? I didn't see any rivers there. You know, how on earth could water erode this uh, if there's no water? 
You know, occasionally they will get some flash floods. You know, at certain times of the year, these clouds will come by and dump a bunch of rain and, you know, some little muddy rivulets and maybe even some pretty good streams will develop, but they quickly disappear. So how could you erode that much material? There's no rivers, and what little creeks or rivers that develop later on, there's not a huge delta. So how could current processes actually erode this? Obviously, that's myself with my daughter. And uh, what, what I've discovered is that the top of these buttes is not the top of the Colorado Plateau. You know, the Colorado Plateau got pushed up, and the top of these buttes is 2,500 feet below what the top used to be. So in addition to all the stuff that's obvious that's gone, there's 2,500 feet more material that was on top of there that's gone. Now, you can't tell me a river did that. Something much greater had to do that. Um, let's see. This is another picture. Uh, these buttes are, the tallest one is about 1,000 feet above the valley floor. About 1,000 feet. And it's kind of deceptive because, you know, where it, it slopes off, you know, the buttes are pretty vertical. And then when it slopes off, uh, the, that's a completely different layer. It eroded differently. It's not material that broke off. I mean, there's a little bit, but it's typically not material that broke off from those buttes. Now, just to give you an idea of the size of these things, you see that little spot there at the end of the arrow? That's an Indian's house. Now, let's go back to the Grand Staircase. Notice the vermilion cliffs. And you see I have it circled there in the middle. Um, the vermilion cliffs are just above the level where the Grand Canyon starts. So these, uh, these cliffs uh, were in that layer. You can see the layer there. And it's quite a ways down from the top of the Colorado Plateau. And this is a picture that I pulled off the internet to give you the grand staircase effect. I don't know where the picture was taken, but it does show three of the major uh, layers. And this is the truck and the travel trailer that got me on the 3,400-mile trip this past summer. But the question is, where did all that material go? How did it leave? I mean, if you think about it, the layer that we're on right now, there's thousands of cubic miles. And then above that, there's thousands of cubic miles that are just gone. Can we go to the Bible and get a clue? Here in Psalms 104, David describes the majesty of God, and he includes this section on the flood. He, that is God, set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. And continuing on, in this section I'm going to substitute the pronoun they with the real noun. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At your sound, or at the sound of your thunder, 
the water took flight. The water flowed over the mountains. The water went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary the waters cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. In that last phrase, we're remembering Genesis where God gave the rainbow and gave a promise he would never do it again. So there we get an understanding of what must have happened. In other words, the water shed off the continents and went down into big valleys. Well, I'm sorry that this is difficult to read. Uh, I took a picture of this plaque uh, when somebody laid it on a park bench when we were going on a tour. And so there's shadows from a tree and it's kind of hard to see. But on the bottom left, it says the flooding stage. And this is the flooding stage of Noah's uh, flood. Um, The flooding stage has uh, two, uh, well then after the flooding stage is the retreating stage. So up there on the top left, you'll see the retreating stage. In other words, the water came up and then the water went down. And the retreating stage is split up into two sections. One is the sheet where the water would move in sheets, sometimes thousands of miles wide, the water would shed off the continents. But as the water level went down, you would have the channelized phase, which is in the top right corner. Now you've been sitting there for a few minutes, we're gonna do a demonstration. And this demonstration requires some kids to help. And I need, is Sean here? Are you Sean? Can you come up and help me? See if it comes through. It doesn't. Well, we'll have to do it this way. It's not going to work. Ah. Let's try it again. Technology, I can't believe it. Well, Sean, I may not be able to use you. What I wanted to do is use the camera on this thing, and I'm not sure why it's not working. It's worked every other time. Um, try it once more. I guess we won't do it. Um, so Sean you can stay up here I'm going to call the other kids too I was going to have you hold this so that everybody could see what was going on up here so we're just going to have to uh, we're going to have to uh, there we go so kids are you ready to come up Eliana and Jonathan, can you take the lid off of this container? There we go. Now, what's that? Yeah, are there other kids that want to come up and see? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run some water in here. Oh, you know what? Let's see. Where's the water going? You see it going, going to a lower level? 
Yeah. Now we're going to shut that off. Oh, careful, guys. Oh, now I need something else. Ugh. Can you see? Now we're going to try this. Okay, do you understand that concept? Okay, you can go back to your seats for now, and we'll talk about what happened because the, the grown-ups didn't get to see that. At least the PowerPoint still works. <laughs> so what, what uh, the kids observed is I poured some water into a, a little spot in the dirt and it started to go down through the dirt because I didn't pack it down real tight. But the water collected in this little bowl and then it went around a little ridge and started flowing to a lower point. Then I took this thing, this water bottle, and I shot the stream of water through the little ridge that, that was keeping the water in a particular channel. You'll understand more when I go to the next slide. <clears throat> okay, this is compliments of Google Earth. How many of you have been to Cody, Wyoming? Couple people? Well, Cody, Wyoming is in the top left corner. You can't really see anything that looks like any kind of a town, but the Shoshone River that comes out of Yellowstone uh, is down there where Google, that says Google Earth. That's, that's the point where the Shoshone River flows into uh, the lake that's further up. Now, what I wanna do is show you this video, compliments of Google Earth, and I want you to see where the water is flowing in the river, it collects in this lake, and the area to the right is low, where you see all the green stuff, that's where farmers are growing things, but the water doesn't go the low area, the water actually goes through this notch on the left, and it'll come back around so you can see that better, but the, see that little finger of water? There's a dam there to actually make um, let's see, what's that dam called? Buffalo Bill Lake, I think. <clears throat> but at any rate, there's a dam right there in that little finger so that they can raise the level of the water. Now, think about it. Why did the water cut through that ridge? Here, I'll, whoops. We'll see if we, you can, ah, try it again. No, it's not gonna wanna show it again. I thought it would. But, oh, there we go. Now, th now that you understand, let's look at it again. See, the water flowed uh, into the lake, but it didn't flow into the lowland area. It actually cut a notch right through this ridge. And the base of that ridge, there is granite hard rock that many consider to be creation rock. So why would the water choose to cut a notch 
through that ridge? Why didn't take the easy route and go around? And that's what I was trying to demonstrate here that you couldn't see because my camera doesn't seem to be working. Well, <clears throat> it's called a water gap. And I want, this might be a little tough, but I think you can get it. When the flood happened, um, when the flood happened, this whole area was covered with water, probably a couple of thousand feet deep. But it was covered with water, and as the water drained and lowered, it also drained out the lowland area too. But there was probably a weak spot in the ridge that it also started to cut. So when the water level got down low enough, then it quit in the big broad area because it didn't have cutting power because it was co covering such a large area. But in this notch that got cut through the process, it was focused. So the water that continued to drain was focused in that notch so it had cutting power. Does that make sense? I mean, you understand that concept? Well, that is called a water gap. And I've been told in the Appalachian Mountains, there are literally hundreds of water gaps. There's also something called a wind gap. And that is a gap that no longer has a river or creek or any water going through it, but it was obviously carved by water. So, so how does a conventional scientist who believes in millions of years explain a wind gap? Well, you can't. <clears throat> so that's, that's rather important. And to help us understand, I, I uh, got inspired. You know, when I take a shower, I go through a routine and I don't have to think about what I'm doing. And so oftentimes in a shower, God, I believe, inspires me because my brain is thinking about other things. And one time, uh, God gave me this illustration. <clears throat> now, how many of you have had a windshield like that? At some point in time, somebody's had a windshield that looked like that. Well, I want you to imagine that you have been traveling near some farmer's fields and it's late in this day on a summer and all these bugs are flying and you end up with a windshield that looks like that. You pull over to the side of the road. You take the time to clean every speck of those bugs off your windshield so it's perfectly clean. And you sit there in your car by the side of the road. How long would it take you to end up with a windshield like that if you're just sitting there in your car? Never. Well, if I was going one mile an hour, how long would it take for my windshield to look like that? Never. Maybe two miles an hour? You know, it, it, it isn't going to happen unless you find some bugs that are willing to be kamikaze bugs and, and hit your windshield even though you're hardly moving. You know, at one or two miles an hour, the bugs will just fly away and they will not smash on your windshield. In a sense, that's what happens with a lot of the geological features that we see around the world today. It would not happen with today's rates of water flow, amounts of water. In order to get these bugs to do this, you've got to be moving and there's got to be a bunch of bugs. Well, in the same respect, a lot of the geological features that we see have to have a lot of water moving very fast. In the Northwest, 
we, uh, we focus a lot on quartzite. Quartzite is, uh, is a rock that's made from uh, sand that's morphized, or I, in layman's terms, I just think of it as melted together. But in the beginning phases of the flood, this stuff got buried pretty low. And so when the mountains, Rocky Mountains come up, it exposes this stuff and it breaks off because it's hard rock. It's about the fifth hardest rock, so it's pretty hard. And these quartzites travel 400 miles from their place of origin. Well, how do you explain that? You can't unless there's a lot of water. There's more I could share with you on that, but uh, that might be for another time. So let's go to uh, Bryce Canyon. Bryce Canyon is in the top right corner of this picture. And Bryce Canyon, um, the whole park area varies from 8,000 to about 9,000 feet. And this is uh, Bryce Canyon as, as you kind of overlook it. Um, I was standing at about 8,000 feet when I took this picture on the rim. It's made of uh, limestone, and we'll see if we can get this to uh, show you a, a short video. Now remember, the Colorado Plateau, and this is about the top of the Colorado Plateau, was pushed up 10,000 feet. And there's some that believe, and apparently there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests that this area was a big lake. So some water got trapped when this uh, 130,000 square miles called the Colorado Plateau got pushed up. There was a lot of water that got trapped in certain areas, and they believe that this was one of them, and then it catastrophically drained. But the question is, where did the material go? If you look all the way across, you see the, the rim uh, near the top of the picture that's a long ways away. That's comparable to what I'm standing on right there. It's the same layer. So if you look across there, there's a ton of material that is missing. Where did it go? Well, we, we hiked down into uh, Bryce Canyon and the weird formations they call hoodoos, and I'm not gonna show you a bunch of pictures of that, but this tree was probably about 100 years old because they don't get much moisture there. And if you think about this tree and how far it goes up, uh, there's hardly been anything break off from, from these cliffs that's down in Bryce Canyon area. If it had been there for millions of years, the canyon should be filled up with all kinds of debris. But there isn't any, or not very much. Because if you talk to the ranger, they will tell you that these weird formations called hoodoos uh, are formed when moisture gets into the cracks of the rock and it freezes and then expands and breaks off pieces and then it falls down. Well, if that were really true, if that's how most of it happened, then these canyons should all be full of the broken rock and they're just not. And this is a, another picture looking clear across and you can see how much material is gone just flat gone. Now I threw this picture in. This is not uh, around the Colorado Plateau. This is in another part of the country. But I threw this in because it does have some weird erosional features. Does anyone have any idea where that might be? 
the Badlands of South Dakota. Yep. So there is a few other places that have interesting erosional features. But let's go back to the Grand Staircase. If you notice there in the middle, uh, there's uh, Zion. Now, Zion's kind of hard to see because it's just a dark crack there that, that they have uh, turned so we can't really see much. But it's in the, the gray cliffs and the white cliffs. So let's take a look at Zion. Zion is really a beautiful place. And Madison, my, my niece from Virginia, is really an amazing story. I mean, God has provided many miracles in her life, and sometime it'd be fun to just tell you stories about her. But she decided on our Yellowstone trip that she went on with us that uh, she wanted to be a creation scientist and be able to tell people like you what the real evidence is. So she is currently in her junior year at a very secular university called James Madison University in Virginia. She is taking both engineering and geology, two very difficult majors, and they told her she couldn't do it, but she is and she's prospering and God's blessing her. So when Madison um, saw the stuff in Zion, she got excited. She's, I, I can't believe this, because she has studied and gone on field trips near Virginia. And uh, she taught me a new term. It's called hummocky. Ever heard of the word hummocky? I hadn't heard, because I'd never taken a geology class. But she taught me this new word. Now, hummocky is the way the layers are laid down with turbulence. Like, uh, well, her professor said, that this hummocky that they were examining somewhere in Virginia was about this high and these these layers would kind of swoop together and the teacher said that is significant it would take a category 9 hurricane to produce that kind of hummocky and she was looking at the stuff in Zion and she says it's meters thick well how does that compare if it takes a Category 9 hurricane to make hummocky like this, and then she's looking at stuff that's 30, 40, maybe 50 feet thick, what kind of a situation caused that? Could it be a worldwide flood? <laughs> well, there's two things that I wanted to do when we were in Zion, and one is a hike called Angel's Landing. And I, I'm not going to show you all the stuff, but this... This uh, kind of gives an idea. My son helped me put this video together showing uh, parts of the hike called uh, Angel's Landing. This trail was created in 1926 so that the average visitor would have the opportunity to climb to this uh, point. This area uh, is uh, the white and gray cliffs in the Grand Staircase, but it's also comparable to the Navajo Sandstone. And the Navajo sandstone, the scientists believe by studying the grain size uh, and the type of grain that is making up this sandstone came from the Appalachian Mountains. Now, now, did you catch that? The Appalachian Mountains eroded and the stuff ended up in the, on the Colorado Plateau? How, how can that happen? Well, they say... Rivers must have taken it over there. Well, what river runs that way? And, and how can you have a river take that much material? 
Because this Navajo sandstone is more than the Colorado Plateau. It is it's spread out over a greater area. It's, it's incredible. Well, we hike, hiked up this, and um, it, it gives us an appreciation for uh, God's beauty. Now, I, I want you to also notice when we're hiking up some of these spots, it doesn't look any more eroded than other areas. And thousands of people have been hiking on this for a long time, and it's about the same. How could wind erode this stuff? It, it's just incomprehensible. Now, that's the road down there. We're about almost 1,500 feet above the road. And this is looking out the other direction. Fantastic place. <clears throat> um, the next thing I wanted to do, or another thing I wanted to do, was the river walk. And the river walk is a lot of fun. And it, it doesn't have a tremendous amount to do with uh, geology stuff. Well, I shouldn't say it that way, it, with my presentation. But uh, we had a good time going on this river walk. And we did look at these canyon walls, which is still the Navajo-type sandstone. And it's, somebody asked me why it was black. And it's, it's blackened in some areas because of the minerals that, that uh, are leached out of the sandstone, and then they turn it black. It has to do with manganese, iron and manganese. Um, but these, these cliffs are about 1,000 feet high and you're walking in the river a good share of the time as, uh, as you go up this canyon. So it, it, it's a phenomenal place. Um, if you care to know, it's the Virgin River that uh, flows through there, and you have to be cautious uh, during, uh, mon well, when they have these monsoons, not really monsoons, but these thunderstorms that come through and will dump a bunch of rain in a short amount of time, and, and then it will flood and take all kinds of stuff, including people down, so you don't go hiking there then. Well, we'll skip that. That could go on for a little while. We're back to the grand staircase. Next, we want to look at the Vermilion Cliffs. The Vermilion Cliffs are right there in the center of the picture, and you notice how far down they are on this grand staircase. They're quite a ways down, quite a few layers down. But the Vermilion Cliffs are at the same level as those buttes from Monument Valley. Those buttes that I showed you <clears throat> is the same level as these Vermilion Cliffs. And I'll show you just a, a brief uh, video of the Vermilion Cliffs. Um, not, not too significant if you're just driving by, but if you understand the whole scheme of things, it, it becomes more impressive. The valley floor that you see there is at the level of the top of Grand Canyon. So moving from uh, right to left, we have the pink cliffs where Bryce Canyon is, the gray and white cliffs where Zion is. Uh, we took a brief look at the Vermilion Cliffs, and now we'll take a look at the Grand Canyon. Now, the Grand Canyon, there's two rims. Um, the north is on the right side, and the south is on the left side. And the... Uh, the north side of the Grand Canyon is higher than the south side. But I have a question for you to ponder. What river 
would run uphill and carve the Grand Canyon. Because you notice that the top, if it continued that, that crest of material, if the Grand Canyon wasn't there, it would be uphill. So any river should have taken the path of least resistance. It shouldn't have cut through an elevated area, but it did. And if some of you are more engineer types, uh, at the end, I'll give you my email and I'll direct you to some sources, some amazing sources that for me are very interesting. But when I was playing the video at breakfast time, my wife says, who is that? Because the guy, the engineer is talking in a monotone and to me, the, the information was interesting. His voice was not. <laughs> so if, if you have an interest in that area, this guy is phenomenal about explaining how the Grand Canyon actually came into existence. But here is uh, a video uh, at the uh, north rim of the Grand Canyon. The north rim is at about 8,200 feet. The south rim is uh, 6,800 to 7,400 feet. So it's substantially lower. And the Colorado River runs right through the canyon from left to right. Well, we'll get to that spot. By the way, uh, Madison spotted some uh, fossils, some sea fossils, some clams and some other sea creatures in this particular layer. This is way up here on the rim of the Grand Canyon. There are fossils. <clears throat> so the river actually runs. See uh, at the top of the picture that, that ridge uh, where the yellow arrow is? That is the south rim and the river runs just below that down at the bottom. This canyon that we're looking through doesn't have a river in it. It's a side canyon and it's almost as deep as Grand Can or, or the main part of the Grand Canyon where the river goes. This is uh, compliments of Google Earth. This is that same side canyon. The north rim is uh, partway up on the right-hand side, at least uh, when you go to the north rim, that's where you are. And this is a side canyon that cuts down about as deep as the main part of the canyon, and there's no river. Now, you might get away with explaining from the south rim that the river cut the canyon, but how do you explain this side canyon? when there's no river. Well, what cut that? A lot of water in a much different circumstance. Um, this, uh, well, when we, when we left the Grand Canyon, we were airlifted out by a helicopter and we were flown to a ranch out in the middle of nowhere and we transferred, after a few minutes, we transferred from the helicopter to this fixed-wing airplane that took us back to our starting point at Marble Canyon. And <clears throat> this plane, I mean, I, I got on this plane and I intentionally got on the right-hand side because I wanted to take pictures this direction. So if you look uh, past the strut on the left-hand side of the picture, that darkened area is a ridge that's over a thousand feet above the main part of this valley area. And this this is uh, another picture out the window. 
you can see the deep canyons. This is called Marble Canyon, and it's just above the Grand Canyon. It's really the beginning of the Grand Canyon. They just named it differently. <clears throat> um, now, for the discerning eye, you might look at that and realize it's slightly going uphill. Huh, how can that be? Also, the, uh, the dark area on the top right corner of the picture is at least 1,000 feet higher than the lower part. Now, this, this is looking into the uh, canyons, and I put the arrow there, that yellow arrow, to show where the water is going. This, this canyon uh, that's in the main part of the picture there is dry. There's no river in it, and it's called a barbed canyon. Um, this one is a little easier to see that the ground slopes up and the direction of the water flow is in the direction of that arrow. Um, this, uh, this is a, another picture of uh, the Barb Canyons and that, uh, that bank on the left-hand side that's called Echo Cliffs. It's the same material as the Vermilion Cliffs. They just named it differently, I don't know why but it's a slightly different location, but it's the same material that used to be continuous all the way across. And this is a barbed canyon. Now, barbed canyons are kind of hard to figure out. Uh, this is complements of Google Earth, uh, and it's looking down on these canyons. Now, if you had to guess, which way is the water going? Any guesses? How many think the water goes from left to right? Okay, there's a few. How many think the water goes from right to left? A few more. Maybe you're informed. <laughs> because that's right. The water goes from right to left. But how many have ever seen a creek or a river that has these side canyons that go the wrong way? This is called, they are called barbed canyons. Now, if you watch the explanation on this YouTube video from this engineer that's boring to listen to, but fascinating information, uh, there, there was a period in the time of the formation of the Grand Canyon where the water on the surface of the ground was running from left to right. And that's when those canyons formed. But now the water goes from right to left. It's following that canyon right into the Grand Canyon. Uh, and that arrow shows the direction of the water. This is another side canyon the, off of the main uh, Grand Canyon, and this area has trees on it because it's higher elevation. You can see the kind of greenery down in the lower part of the picture. Uh, this is called the Kayabab Plateau, or the Kayabab Uprise, or um, where the ground is higher. It came up much higher, so these trees uh, get a little more precipitation. It's a little cooler up there so they can survive when the south rim doesn't have nearly as much. Um, but the water, this is further upstream, the water was more uh, widespread. At the uh, Kaibab uplift, it was focused into a narrow channel like I intended for you to see uh, here with this water gap situation where water is focused and has much more carving power. But here, it was more broad, and the erosional effects uh, were, were significantly broader. 
uh, much, much water. And all these canyons are dry now. There's no rivers in them. Well, <clears throat> this is a, a nice picture of the Grand Canyon. And what I want us to do now is focus on the bathtub ring of the Grand Canyon. You ever heard that before? What's a bathtub ring? Do the kids know what a bathtub ring is? You guys don't take baths, right? Well, the bathtub ring of the Grand Canyon is called the Coconino Sandstone Layer. Now, they don't know exactly where the Coconino Sandstone came from. They haven't figured that out like the Navajo Sandstone. But the, the bathtub ring or the Coconino Sandstone is that light layer just down from the top. And we couldn't see it uh, once we got down into the canyon. We couldn't really be up close and personal. So in Marble Canyon, we had the opportunity to be uh, up close, and we actually looked at it. And this guy, uh, Dr. John Whitmore, teaches at a Baptist university in an Ohio. Um, can't remember the city. Oh, Cedarville, Cedarville, Ohio. So he teaches there, and he got his doctorate in geology at Loma Linda and studied under... Uh, Leonard Brand, Leonard Brand at Loma Linda, and got his doctorate degree. And he was along on this trip, and he shared with us, and we don't have sound, so I'm going to kind of tell you what he's telling us about. <clears throat> um, he talked about this layer right behind him called the Coconino Sandstone, and how it is the first layer that has these cross beds. In other words, these lines that are at an angle, they're called cross beds. And back uh, in the 30s, there was a geologist named Edwin McKee that uh, studied this layer and determined it was laid down in a desert. Well, if this layer was laid down in a desert, that's a problem for us as Christians. So uh, John Whitmore, as well as others, have done a lot of studying of the Coconino sandstone layer. And... You know, the, the theory was, or at least this John McKee, felt that it was done in a desert because of these cross beds. And what he was going to explain right here is that if you have sand dunes and the wind takes the sand up one side and it goes down the other, that that will cause a cross bedding effect if it goes on long enough. And he took his field lens and he looked at the little individual crystals or the sand grains that make up the Coconino sandstone and he felt they were well-rounded and so he concluded that this Coconino sandstone layer was formed in a desert. In a desert. Well, Dr. Whit... Well, I should also tell you that Dr. Whitmore with these students, um, they they took some samples of the sandstone and they uh, made this experiment with a pickle jar. And <clears throat> what they were looking for is the effect of mica. Mica is a fairly fragile mineral that uh, is often accompanied in uh, quartz and most of these sand grains are quartz. So what they would do is they took this pickle jar and they put in sand with mica flakes and then they put a propeller at the top of the pickle jar 
and they put a, the little, not very much sand at the bottom, but they put this propeller and drove this propeller so there was a circular wind in this pickle jar. So there was a dune at the bottom of the pickle jar that moved around and around and around the bottom of the pickle jar. And the students asked him, well, how long should we let this experiment go? And he said, well, I don't know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, we need to let it go for a while. <clears throat> because what they were trying to determine is how long the mica flakes would last. Because in a desert environment, when the sand grain is blown up one side and down the other, there's a lot of tumbling action that occurs, and the mica flakes that are in the sand will disintegrate. But in a waterborne situation, because of the buoyancy of the water, these mica flakes will survive, at least much better than in a dry environment. So they ran this experiment, and they checked in a couple of months, they couldn't find any mica flakes. It had been ground to a powder, and you know they couldn't determine any mica. Well, they shortened it up and shortened it up, and finally they had to shorten it to four days. So in four days, most of the mica had been broken up with this propeller moving the sand around in the pickle jar. Then they took the same kind of sand with mica flakes in it. They put water in the pickle jar, a different lid, and they put it on a rock tumbler to see how long the mica flakes would last in the rock tumbling situation with water. After a year, they quit the experiment and they could still find mica flakes. The Coconillo sandstone layer has mica flakes. So what does that tell us? Well, there's some other things about uh, this particular layer. Um, the cross beds that you see behind him, you can't see them very well, but the cross beds that you see behind that, him range from 17 to 20 degrees. But if it's a desert environment, the cross beds are at 34 degrees, give or take. So there's another clue, it couldn't have been in a, in a dry environment. So let's, let's go to a demonstration. And you know, I, I, I will try this camera once more. It doesn't work. I'm not sure why it's not communicating up there. <laughs> but the kids, at least, uh, will get to uh, do this one. <clears throat> so, uh, who would like to be a volunteer? Well, you guys know what's going to happen. Uh, maybe I could have you, you come up. <clears throat> but Jonathan and Eliana, you can uh, take the lid off of that one. Okay, what I'm going to have him do is uh, take this toy dinosaur and I'm going to have him make some tracks. What I want you to do is kind of press it in a little bit and try to pretend he's walking up the dune. There you go. Hand it to somebody else and let somebody else give it a try. Boy, there's a bunch of kids. Okay, now, let's see. Sarah, why don't you uh, 
you can hand these out. So the kids can all have one of these. Is it? Uh, no, that's somebody else's phone. <laughs> okay. Okay, guys, move aside. Now yeah, we're going to add some water. Okay, now somebody make some tracks in the wet part. Who, who would like to? Yeah, make, make a bunch of them. Okay, that's good enough, guys. Hey, thanks for the showing us the picture there, Sean. Did I have enough toys for each one to get one? Still not coming through? Hmm. There we go. So what, what did we learn from this? There you go. The tracks are much better formed in the wet sand than the dry sand. In fact, this sand, I think, had a little moisture in it. If it, if it didn't have any moisture, then it, it'd really be tough to leave a track. Well, these tracks are in the, in, uh, the Coconil sandstone. They don't collect this in the park because they're not allowed to, but this was uh, uh, purchased by a, uh, a person in my area named Stan Hudson. He started the Creation Museum at the North Pacific Union Conference, and he purchased this, and I took some pictures of it. Isn't it amazing how detailed these uh, tracks are? And I turned the tracks upright because these tracks, the tracks that are found in the Coconino sandstone layer are always going uphill. You know all these layers? If it was a desert environment, you would think that sometime the animal would need to go downhill. But in the Coconino sandstone layer, the tracks are always going uphill. And they, uh, I don't know, you probably couldn't see on the picture, but this dinosaur I had him use to make the, uh, the tracks had a tail, and it left some tail tracks. 
In the Coconillo sandstone layer, it is extremely rare to find any tail tracks. Usually, they're just footprints. And if you notice the little divots that each, uh, each footprint is, is composed of, there's a little push-out area. Because he's going uphill, he's pushing and makes the sand kind of push out and make those little divots. Now, somebody asked me how big these tracks were, and I had to go back, and it wasn't ideal lighting conditions, but I had to go back and take a picture and stick my pen in there so you could see the tracks are actually quite small. Now, the Coconillo sandstone layer only has tracks. There's no body parts. There's no fossils of animals. There's no fossils of vegetation. And these tracks, like I said, they're always going uphill, but sometimes they go at an angle. In other words, the, the toes are pointed uphill, but the tracks go like this. So do you ever see animals walk kind of sideways? Not too often. Maybe a crab. But these tracks will often go at an angle. And they'll be going along and then poof, disappear, and then they reappear over here and continue. Now that's really easy to explain in a water environment. Because if these layers were laid down in water and these animals were trying to get up to the top, then they would be going uphill. And if there was a slight side current, it would be taking them sideways as they're trying to go uphill. So it would explain why the tracks would be at an angle. It would also explain why the tracks will disappear and then reappear because of the buoyancy of the water that might be lifted off the bottom for a while and then they'll come back down and continue making tracks. Also, no tail tracks indicates that the tails were buoyant in the water and not dragging along like they would in a desert environment. Um, I threw this, this uh, one in because this is my niece and she, uh, she was excited because she found something called load casts. And she explains in here what load casts are, but we don't have sound, so I'll just tell you that these uh, depressions happened when the top layer was deposited over a, a more fragile layer and softer, so it was probably mud, and then the weight of the upper layer pushed down into the mud. So now that the layer that used to be mud is gone, we can see these depressions called load casts. Well, I've shared, hopefully I've shared some interesting information to you that can give you more confidence in the Bible's record of the past. We can be confident that there really was a flood and that really it was uh, a world-changing event. You know, for years, the creation scientists had trouble with the Coconino sandstone layer because it seemed, at least from the information that had been published, uh, that it was formed in a desert. And to the evolutionists, that's important because um, they say that the, the sedimentary layers that compose the Colorado Plateau were a result of the Gulf of Mexico coming and flooding the land and then retreating and then flooding the land and retreating many, many, many times. Well, you'd have to throw in a dry environment in that mix to make that even 
possibly possible. I mean, without having a dry layer, then their whole explanation falls apart. But they can't explain to you how the Gulf of Mexico came and flooded even one time, let alone many, many, many times. So the Coconino sandstone layer was a difficult thing for the creation scientists to, uh, to really grapple with. Because if it happened in a desert, there wasn't a desert in the middle of Noah's flood. But you can see with careful study, these scientists have found that yes, indeed, it happened in a water environment. In fact, most of the layers that go all the way up to the top of the Colorado Plateau up to Bryce Canyon have fossils in them. Now it's true that the Coconino sandstone layer doesn't have body part fossils or vegetation fossils, but it has track fossils. So most of the layers have marine fossils. It happened in a wet environment, just like the Bible says with Noah's flood. So I, I hope that this has been informative to you and give you uh, confidence uh, if there's a particular area that you have concern or question about or want to learn more, write down my email address, put something about creation in the, in the subject line, and I will direct you to resources that have been helpful to me. Um, we're not live streaming, right? We weren't able to do that? We did? Oh. <laughs> well, tomorrow... Uh, the plan is to go on a hike. It, it's weather dependent, I guess. Uh, the plan is to go on a hike, and I want to, you to see something else. And I, whoops, I have a picture. Uh, if you look above this person's head, you can see how these layers fold back. That's called a parabolic recumbent uh, fold. Parabolic recumbent fold. Now, the secular scientists want you to believe that all these layers, including the crossbeds, were laid down over millions and millions of years. But how can you explain these layers in the rock that seem to curve back on itself? Parabolic recumbent folds. And you have them right here in Tennessee. So if you go on the hike and if it happens tomorrow, as planned, we will look at a spot that has this. That is all I'm going to share with you tonight. I want to encourage you to come tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. They have church service here. I'm going to speak about the ark and uh, the flood. And then uh, in the evening at 7 o'clock, hopefully we'll get some of our uh, glitches worked out. And we will be able to uh, uh, smoothly go along. And I'm going to talk to you about the Ice Age. Now, to me, the Ice Age is one of the most exciting things to learn about. The, the Ice Age answers problems that I had as a child. I'll give you one example, and that is when the ten spies went into the land of Canaan, how did they describe it? Anybody? It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and, and two of the spies brought back a bunch of grapes. It was huge, right? It took two men to carry it. Well, as a child, I'm thinking about that, and I look at pictures. I've never been to Israel, but maybe some of you have been there. I look at Israel, and it's kind of desert. It's not a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, well, is the Bible wrong, 
Or is there some other explanation? Tomorrow night, I'll give you the, the answer and many others.